Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. God bless you, get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Folks, my very special guest today, especially as we talk more and more about the upcoming election, and we hear more and more about things that Russia is up to. He's very timely. He's pursuing a doctorate in international relations at the University of Oxford as a Marshall Scholar. His reporting and analysis have appeared in the New York Times and New Yorker, Foreign Affairs. He's an associate fellow of Davenport College at Yale University, where he received his undergraduate and master's degrees in history. Here to talk about his new book, Rigged. Uh, I should say it like Trump said, Rigged. Uh, America, Russia, and 100 years of covert electoral interference. David Scheimer joins us now. Well, first of all, David, am I pronouncing your name correctly? That's, that's correct. It is Scheimer. That's, that's a good okay. name. 
glad I got it. How are you? Um, and how are you and your loved ones in the pandemic? Hope you are healthy and safe. Yeah, no, we're all we're all staying well, thank you. And I'm I'm really excited to be here to be able to talk about the book. And um, yeah, no, very luckily so far, everyone's safe and healthy, and people are certainly isolated. My loved ones, as everyone is 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 should be, is you know staying primarily in their homes. Um, but you know that's the best case scenario in, in the world we now live in, right? Right. It, it certainly most certainly is. We're glad glad to hear that. And the book has just blown up overnight. New York Times, New York Times book review and everything. Uh, you, it's you've gotten almost so big, too big to come on my show. So <laughs> I don't think that's I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. So, um, but I, it's nice of you to say that the review it was it was so surprising and so exciting. So that no, was thrilling to see. Well, congratulations on that. Well, it's definitely timely. Uh, let's begin with with what's really kind of hot right now. This conversation around Russian bounties on U.S. troops, and that's not electoral interference, but does that story in any way intersect with uh, what you've researched in terms of covert election interference? It does, um, and it, it, it intersects, I would say, in, in two ways. Um, the first is understanding what Russia wants for the United States. And what, what, what Russia wants for the United States is to discredit the United States, to undermine the United States, to turn the United States into a weakened, corrupted version of itself. Part of that story plays out in our elections by delegitimizing our process of succession, by sowing chaos and distrust in our electorate, by choosing or seeking to choose who our leaders are. But in Afghanistan, for example, there's another facet of that strategy because if you order hits on U.S. soldiers and America doesn't launch a response, you humiliate America on the international stage. You show that America is not able to defend the lives of its own soldiers, which is the basic function of a commander in chief, right? Which is to say, if someone tries to kill my people, I will then, you know, impose costs on you in order to protect my people. And if that doesn't happen, and so far it hasn't, what you're seeing right now is a global sort of recognition of, wait, the United States can't even do that? So therefore, what can the United States do? So it's both discrediting our democracy at home and abroad. That's number one. The second thing that it has to do with is it's this ongoing dynamic between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin that is very difficult to get to the bottom of if you're not Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin. But there is one discernible pattern across history. And what that is, is when a foreign actor helps to elect um, a leader, and that leader knows about the operation. Collusion's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. You don't need to be a participant in it. You just have to know about it. So if you go back to the summer and fall of 2016, Donald Trump knew, saw reports that Russia had hacked and released emails, that Russia was trying to get him elected. That's, that's indisputable because it was in the public domain. The historical pattern is that when that happens, you become both psychologically indebted to the person who helped you, and you become insecure about your own electoral legitimacy. So, so an example of this is in 1964 in the Chilean election, the CIA interfered in that election. So this is, you know, this isn't just a Russian story. The CIA interfered in that election in order to help someone named Eduardo Frey. And at first, the operation was going to be completely hidden. But the CIA's leader said, wait, why don't we make it so that he knows we're helping him? He doesn't need to participate, but he just has to know so that way 
we can develop influence over him once he's in power, because that way he will see us as the people who got him into power. So, mm-hmm. so those two stories are intersecting here because when I see what's happening in Afghanistan with an election coming up, I wonder, you know, four years ago, Russia helped Trump. Perhaps this time around again, Trump is hoping the Russians will help him. As several of Trump's advisors told me they think he is in my book, which I lay out in chapter 13. So therefore, he's in a very awkward position because he's being asked to push back against the country that actually helped him assume power. So, so across time, that is a pattern. Um, and, and it puts our leaders in very difficult positions, therefore, when they do not immediately reject foreign interference. Well, it's also, can we also use the word destabilization? I mean, when you talk about a, a, a leader who is dependent on someone that he knows props him up, but is also insecure about it, that's not a very stable person or a stable genius, as he would even call himself. It's not stable at all. And it also makes, it, it discredits the very idea of the democratic process of succession. Because what the democratic process of succession is, is that the domestic constituency chooses their leaders, and then their leaders advance the interests of the domestic constituency. But when you have this odd dynamic between a foreign power, the leader, and insecurity and destabilization, the own people of the country are like, who, whose interests are you serving? And for whom are you trying to, you know, do your work? So, so it creates very difficult dynamics and I think just serves the ultimate Russian goal of discrediting, undermining, and corrupting our democracy. And so it, it, in this case, Russia's doing it and it works for Russia. This is working to a large extent, isn't it? The destabilization, the questionability of democracy, Trump being checkmated, can't respond. It, it's, it's almost like the perfect plan. Yeah, no, I mean, things are going very well for Vladimir And it's important to remember that this isn't just an American moment. All over the world, Russian intelligence is interfering in elections to support authoritarian-minded, divisive leaders. This is a global strategy to divide our allies from each other, to discredit democracy, to get democracies to opt for exclusion over inclusion, um, nationalism over internationalism, because Putin believes that not only serves his interests, but shows his own people. You don't actually want to live in a democracy, because if you lived in a democracy, then your life would just be filled with chaos and dysfunction like all these other countries. So, so this is a global story. America is at the center, because Donald Trump consumes a lot of attention, and America is a very powerful country. Um, but, but yeah, Vladimir Putin, I imagine, is quite happy right now. So this is its historical perspective, 100 years, and, and, and I want to get into that. But uh, I can remember a time um, when Russia had its tentacles as widespread as you just described. Now, I remember, you know, I grew up during the latter part of the Cold War. Uh, I saw the United States and her allies battling with the Soviet Union. I remember Reagan. I was 13 when Reagan was elected president. Um, But I can't remember a moment when the former Soviet Union um, was able to do what you just described and literally play the destabilization again, game rather, destabilization game all over the world. Am I, am I wrong about that? Is, is, isn't this somewhat unprecedented um, for them to be running these operations at least somewhat successfully in as many spaces as they are? So, so I would say the part 
that is perhaps unprecedented is the last part you said successfully, but 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 taking that word out of it, it's it's not unprecedented at all. Um, between 1919 and 1943, Vladimir Lenin and then Joseph Stalin were targeting the elections of democracies all over the world, as I detail, with an organization known as the Communist International, in order to advance communism by funding political parties, by spreading propaganda. So that was the first phase of, let's call, Soviet interference. And that was the minor part, because after World War II, and this is actually extraordinary, very successful, um, in the countries of Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union rigged elections spectacularly successfully rigging votes, altering voter data, spreading millions of pieces of propaganda in order to get their preferred candidates into power in Germany and Hungary and Poland with tactics that mirror Putin's today. They just didn't have the internet. Then after that, the CIA, by the way, gets in the game at this point in 1948, starts interfering in elections to push back against the Soviet Union. And at that point, the CIA and the KGB start interfering in elections all over the world during the Cold War. The Soviet Union in the 1980s was funded a hundred political parties at once across 80 countries. So, so, so there is a wide reach um, of, for, of Soviet money, of Soviet influence. I, I, I had the chance to interview for my book. I ended up interviewing about 130 people, including eight former CIA directors and a former KGB general. And I spent about half a day with that KGB general, and he told me, we were targeting elections all over the world to advance communism, and we were targeting U.S. elections to undermine the United States. What's changed today is the two things. One, Vladimir Putin has abandoned ideology as a constraint. So, so the reason the KGB, Lenin, and Stalin, and their, and their fellow travelers experienced limited success, in my analysis, is because they only supported communists or leftist candidates. And if the people didn't want to elect communists, then you weren't going to have success. What Putin's done is said, I don't care whether you're far left or far right. I'll support you if you're disruptive and if you behave in an authoritarian-minded way. So that is extremely freeing for him. It also has the added benefit of making it so it's very difficult for people who don't study this stuff to see the patterns. Because back in the Cold War, if you only support a communist, then everyone can know, okay, the communist is the Soviet candidate. But it's not instinctively obvious to people why someone like you know, Marine Le Pen or Donald Trump or, you know, the Leave campaign in the United Kingdom, why that would be the equivalent of the Soviet Union's communist candidate, right? It's, it's much more difficult to connect. And the second thing, of course, that's changed is the internet, which has exposed our democracy, which has exposed every democracy, and which has made it much easier for Russia to reach millions and millions of people at much lower cost and with much um, shorter um, planning um, periods. So, so for those two reasons, what Putin's been able to achieve is grander in scale, but I would not say, I, I mean, it's a historical reality that for the last hundred years, uh, Moscow has been trying to interfere in democratic elections all over the world. You mentioned the United States, too, that the United States is guilty of that. Uh, is that a good thing, David, or, or do, should we look at this as just um, uh, give and take, fair game? This is just what the playing field is. The United States meddles in elections, Putin meddles in them. And of course, we're all up in arms about 2016 and bracing for 2020, and we'll get into that. But based upon what you shared and what we know about that history, should we be so up in arms? Is, is this just all's fair in uh, electoral rigging? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll answer that, I guess, in 
first with the past and then into the future. In the past, in terms of whether we should be outraged by CIA action, as a historian, what I do in this book is not say what was right and what was wrong. What I do is collect facts, gather information for readers to absorb and make their own judgments. Was it wrong of the CIA to interfere in elections in Italy and Chile and Guyana in competition with the KGB? Why'd they do it? How'd they do it? To me, it's what's most essential is that we learn the answers to those questions so we can understand the history to understand 2016 in entirely new ways. So so I, I think there were obvious moments in American history where we were wrong, like in Chile, but there are also much more debatable cases. Um, and it's not really the point of was this right, was this wrong? It's more what does this tell us about our current life? However, looking into the future, um, and by the way, the CIA after the Cold War moved away from this practice. Um, while Russia doubled down on it. So this isn't, it's not as though the CIA today is interfering in elections all over the world. Um, And in my opinion, the CIA should ban the practice of covert electoral interference moving forward because there was a credible case to be made during the Cold War that we needed to do this to match the KGB in order to contain communism, to protect democracy, however you wanted to justify it. That was the foreign policy objective. Today, the foreign policy objective of Russia isn't to spread communism, it's to to degrade democracy. And so if we just get in the mud and start interfering in foreign elections, we are therefore degrading democracy too. So if we want to build up democracy, we need to push back against Russia, establish norms against this bad behavior, but not stoop down to their level. And the last thing I'll say in terms of should we care? Yes, we should care. We should care a lot. Because what Russia is doing is violating the sovereignty of our state, is saying we will choose who your leaders are. Your leaders will serve our interests, not your interests. And all those issues you care about, like, you know, for like climate change or, or racial or reforms or police brutality or racial injustice, all these debates we're talking about, what, what, what fits Russia's objectives is for us to make no progress on those issues because it's, it makes our democracy more dysfunctional. So for any American citizen who says, I want my country to make progress, then you want Russia out of our politics, because what Russia wants is for our country to make no progress, actually to recede um, in terms of the progress that we've made. So their interference in our politics, in my opinion, should outrage every American, regardless of if you're a Democrat or Republican or whatever, because it's a violation of our national sovereignty and mandates to be a national response. You looked into 2016. Um, and people have a general sense of 2016. But if I'm not mistaken, you, some of the people you interviewed, you had conversations about whether or not the interference went as far as to alter vote tallies, correct? Yeah, yeah. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. So, so, so what I really get at in the book, I spent a lot of time, I interviewed 26 former advisors, President Obama, folks like John Brennan, Jim Clapper, Susan Rice, and really tried to get into the weeds here. What? I don't want to talk about Mueller. I don't want to talk about politics. I want to talk and write, as I do, about what Russia did and why it was difficult to respond to it. And what I found is that the only way to understand President Obama's response to Russia's operation is by breaking it into two parts as you can any electoral interference operation. And that is part one is efforts to influence voters, to manipulate people, spreading propaganda, releasing emails, manipulating social media. That's all designed to make you think differently, for you to see things that will make you behave differently. The second type of electoral interference is altering votes directly. So you skip manipulating people and you just change ballots. You just decide to rig the vote. 
And that distinction was of paramount importance in the Obama White House in the summer and fall of 2016, because what President Obama knew at the time was two things. One, the Russian government was responsible for the hack and release of emails, and those emails were designed to manipulate public opinion. The second thing he knew was that Russian military intelligence, the same agency that's responsible for these baddies in Afghanistan, um, were systemically penetrating our election systems across the country. We're, we're targeting them, probing them, scanning them inside of them to the point that, according to folks like John Brennan and Jay Johnson, um, they could have altered voter data. They could have altered actual votes. And this is part of the Russian tradition. They had targeted electoral systems in Ukraine two years earlier. They had manipulated votes again across Eastern Europe in the post-war period, in the post-war period. So what happened in the White House was a calculation was made, which was we cannot retaliate against Russia before Election Day for its interference with the emails, etc., because if we do that, we might provoke Russia into altering the vote itself. And the, the objective in the White House became, how do we prevent Russia from disrupting the vote? So everything President Obama did, all those things people might have heard about in bits and pieces, the congressional statement where he approached McConnell, you know, the critical infrastructure designation where Jay Johnson went to the Congress, I mean, to state officials about that, um, the, the warning to Putin. All of that had everything to do with the voting systems, nothing to do with manipulating people. To the point that on election day itself, as I reveal in my book, the White House was running a secret crisis team that was bracing for a Russian cyber attack against our voting systems. So this wasn't just something that was a hypothetical. It was a real thing that the White House was saying, we think this is, as one person put it to me, very possibly going to happen. That Russia will, for example, alter voter data, sow chaos at polling places, give Trump fodder to say in defeat, which was their operating assumption at the time, that the vote was rigged because there were all these irregularities. So after the election, the, 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 the rub is that the tradition of electoral interference really is to manipulate people. Sometimes folks manipulate votes, but it's really about manipulating public opinion. And Russia, therefore, suffered no consequences for its email releases, for its social media manipulation until after the election, because they use that prospect of direct vote alterations to effectively establish something known as escalation dominance over President Obama. Because he said, the, the logic was, if I escalate against you and hit back, retaliate against you in September, you can hit me back harder, so I'm not going to do anything. And, and that's what happened in the White House before Election Day. And many of Obama's aides regret that they weren't more focused on the influence campaign at the time, because that's the thing we've all heard about now, right? The social media and the emails. The, that's what the public understanding of this operation was. Well, in the summer and fall, it had nothing to do with that, and it had everything to do with the exposure of our voting systems. So some of those aides you interviewed see that now as a mistake. So some people are, are very regretful. And, and there were some people who said so at the time. That his Russia advisors, as I detail, pushed really hard in the summer to retaliate against Russia in, in August for not only for its email releases, but to deter further interference. And they were told we were going to wait because we, it's too risky. Why take the risk? So there were already people who were dissenting in real time. And also, yes, now in hindsight, folks say we, sh we didn't have a complete understanding. We didn't appreciate the impact, the effectiveness of the social media and the email stuff. It was all focused on the vote alteration. So there is regret there um, because, again, Putin suffered no consequences for his operation until December of, of, of 2016, right? Up until after the election, nothing, he suffered no cost for what he did, which exposes one of the key, and this isn't a, to knock Obama. 
because this is a really difficult policy challenge, which is you have a hostile foreign adversary spreading propaganda covertly throughout your country, but you also have a hostile foreign adversary who has the capability to manipulate your electoral infrastructure. And balancing those two vulnerabilities at the same time is really difficult and will remain difficult for any leader who cares about defending our electoral sovereignty. But now, I know, too, you mentioned the McConnell communication. There was conversation about jointly Obama and the Congress say, at least making some type of forceful statement. Um, where does that play into the decision-making and risking the escalation? In other words, if McConnell had agreed to make that joint statement, we would have heard more from Obama and the government about what was going on, right? So we would have, not for President Obama, it would have been a statement from McConnell, Harry Reid, Nancy Pelosi, and Paul Ryan. Um, they did issue a statement. It was just really watered down, and it didn't include Russia. So it would have been a more juiced-up statement. And the value of that would have been to communicate to our election officials, because something that is not widely understood is that in the United States, states and localities completely control our election system. So the idea behind that statement was to have congressional leadership in a bipartisan way say to state officials, hey, there's this Russia threat. We need you guys to shore up your election systems and let us provide you with security assistance. And McConnell took Russia out of that statement. And as I, as I detail in the book, John Brennan walked me through his one-on-one -on -one briefing with McConnell in which McConnell said to him, you know, I, or insinuated that Brennan was exaggerating the intelligence around the Russian operation in order to undermine Trump. So, so, so that was something that really upset Brennan, really upset the president. Um, it hurt the statement, but the statement was just one prong in a broader strategy to address the vulnerabilities of our election systems. It was the statement. It was warning Putin. It was um, the critical infrastructure designation pursuit of that. Um, and it was the public statement that did come out on the 7th of October. So I, I, I don't think we should act as though the congressional statement were sort of the, uh, the, the entire strategy, because that would almost be a disservice to the Obama team. They were doing multiple things at once to try to shore up our vulnerabilities. But it is indisputable that Mitch McConnell inhibited rather than advanced progress in defending the security of the United States in the, in the fall of 2016. The comparison has also been made, and I want to ask you this in your research, that some of Obama's decision-making um, was not, it went into his decision-making, wanting to not appear as if he himself was trying to too, trying to too heavily influence the election. Kind of like LBJ and Nixon and the Paris Peace Accords. He knew it, could have blown up the whole spot, but LBJ was like, no, I don't want to look like I'm doing that. So what, did that ever enter into it? What, was that a non-factor? And, and what you're sharing with us, I appreciate, because most people have not heard this um, uh, before in terms of escalation dominance, but did it ever into, enter into the Obama administration's deliberations the risk of, of the appearance of putting their thumb on the scale? So it did, and, and it, this is all interconnected. Um, because because the concern of appearing political becomes more acute if you're concerned that foreign actors are going to try to make the vote seem illegitimate. Because if foreign actors are going to try to make the vote seem illegitimate and the public perception is that the sitting president is politicizing the election, 
suddenly that again provides Donald Trump with fodder to say it's all rigged, I was cheated, and let's remember the Russian objective to discredit the democratic process of succession. So this is all about undermining confidence in the legitimacy of our elections. Donald Trump is a means to that end. He is not the end in itself. So, so the way it's been described to me is that in political conversations, what you're saying was talked about very often. In national security sit-room conversations, it had much more to do with that escalatory concern, but they were intertwined. And that's why President Obama asked the congressional leaders to issue the statement rather than issuing it himself. That's why he had Jay Johnson and Jim Clapper issue their statement rather than issue it himself. He thought his voice would be perceived as partisan. And as David Cohen, the deputy CIA director, explained to me, that reluctance to have the head of the Democratic Party, who really, he's also the commander in chief, but he's also the most famous Democrat in the country, who clearly wanted one side to win, avoiding that appearance of partisanship did affect their response. And it's all premised on their operating assumption. As one official put it to me, the working hypothesis was that Hillary Clinton would win, that Donald Trump would shout that the election was rigged and would try to incite violence. There were riot teams ready. The the United States government was preparing for riots, was preparing for violence on election day. It's something else that I talk about in the book. And this was the working hypothesis. And viewed from that lens, if, if you're anticipating Trump will announce the election was rigged, Obama, therefore, wants it to appear as unrigged as possible. Part of that is preventing a cyber attack against our election systems. Part of that is preventing any perception that he was, like you said, putting his thumb on the scale. So it's all connected. Wow, it's it, very complicated, as a matter of fact. So, 2020. Yeah. I mean, what you're sharing is not comforting. And now we actually have an occupant in the White House um, who was a part of something rigged, got in there through something rigged. There's no reason we shouldn't expect that again, even as we speak, there are things going on, aren't there? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's, you've, you've hit exactly the, the key thing that's changed between now and four years ago is that covert electoral interference typically is really a story of the sitting heads of government um, because they're the ones who run their intelligence services. They're the ones who can determine how to either attack or defend the country. So four years ago, we had a president in Barack Obama who struggled to do so, but he tried. And his objective was to maintain the security and sanctity of our elections. Donald Trump is now the commander-in-chief. He has solicited foreign electoral interference. He has denied that Russia interfered in our 2016 election at all. And several of Trump's advisors told me, you know, we think Trump wants Russia to help him again. And from Putin's perspective, being someone who pushes as far as he can, as the old saying goes, until he meets pushback, there won't be any pushback with Trump. And that matters because that means Russia knows that it can basically do whatever it wants without having to worry about Trump imposing costs on that. And in terms of what we should be watching out for, it's two things. It's those two tracks. The first is Russian efforts to manipulate the, the voters. Last time was so media and hacked emails. We'll see what it is this time. These tactics have been evolving for a century. There, it's the same ideas, and we can talk about what the KGB did in U.S. elections, but direct extensions of those tactics were what Putin did in 16, but they are always evolving, so we should be waiting to see what's next to manipulate the minds of American voters. The second thing to watch out for is whether Russia will escalate its operation toward disrupting the vote. I worry that we're more vulnerable to that form of attack now because the coronavirus is sowing so much doubt about whether the vote will be legitimate, whether people will be able to vote safely and securely, that it will take far much less effort to sow doubt, real, real doubt about whether the vote was legitimate. And, and 
Russian tradition here, in part, is preying upon pre-existing weaknesses, pre-existing vulnerabilities. COVID has made us really vulnerable to an attack against our election systems. Um, so those are the two things I'm watching out for. And I do worry that Russia knows that it can do what it wants without worrying about experiencing consequences. I also worry that at the least what Obama did was try to counter Russia and after the election have an intelligence community report on what Russia did because he wanted people to know. I worry that the intention of the current administration is the opposite, um, that we they don't want us necessarily to know. And the problem with this, again, is that the people who identify what a foreign intelligence service are doing is President Trump's security chiefs, his intelligence apparatus. And, and if he chooses to try to keep that information suppressed, as there have been indications that he did earlier this year, there's no guarantee that the American people will actually know what's happening, either at the time or even in hindsight. Um, so those are the things I'm thinking about. Um, and and I, I would say that I am concerned going into November. The KGB and U.S. elections their influence. Give us a snapshot of that. Most people don't know about that. Sure. So the KGB interfered in U.S. elections throughout the Cold War. And, and, and a key point, by the way, people say this is a political issue. You know, it's pro-Democrat, anti-Republican. Well, during the Cold War, this KGB tried to destroy Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, Republicans. So, so, and then later on, they wanted to help a Republican. But again, it has nothing to do with political party. It has only to do with the interests of the Russian state. So during the Cold War, what the Soviet Union did directly foreshadowed what Putin did. Number one, in 1960 and 1968, um, the Soviet ambassador to the United States on instruction from the leaders of the Soviet Union approached directly the Democratic nominees for president in one-on-one -on -one meetings and in order to offer to assist their campaigns, direct coordination to present to them offers to help get them elected. In both cases, Adlai Stevenson and Hubert Humphrey rejected the advances. They said, this is an accord, irresponsible, get away from me. There was no, you know, we love it, quote unquote. But, but, the, but the advance was made. Um, the idea was there. Another example is that um, in 1976, um, the Soviet Union, the KGB, tried to find evidence that a candidate they didn't like named Henry Jackson, who was running the Democratic primary, they wanted to prove that he was um, gay. So they thought he was gay because he was married late or whatever they thought the reason was. And they basically launched a national search. All their KGB stations in the U.S. And I went through a lot of KGB archives to figure sort of the story out to figure out, is he gay and how can we prove it? And it turns out they couldn't prove it. So what they do, they made up a file saying that he was. So, so they took this FBI file that they made up and emailed it to a bunch of newspapers. And those newspapers, not emailed, sorry, mailed. Those newspapers who acted as gatekeepers at the time, because you have no Twitter, said, we think this is fake, we're not going to run it. The operation failed. But when you look at the underlying idea of that, which was, we are going to take someone's private information, make it public in order to destroy them, make the private life public, that is exactly what Russia did to John Podesta and the Democratic National Committee in finding their private correspondence, hacking it and releasing it. But instead of having one fake file, they had 50,000 real files. And instead of sending them to newspapers, they just uploaded them onto the Internet. Same idea. Figure out what your secrets are. Make them publicly known. And then the last thing is that KGB spread a lot of propaganda through a variety of different mediums in order to advance their objectives, which were, A, to, to help the candidate they liked, but key and B, number two, was to sow discord. 
to sow discontent. That's a long-running Soviet objective, including and foremost racial discord. The KGB would stage hate crimes. The KGB would would write fake letters, stage anti-Semitic incidents, by the way, too, so religious as well, in order to, as this KGB general who participated in these operations put it to me, to show the world that the United States was nothing more than a, quote, hotbed of hate, dysfunctional, unenviable. So, so that, again, is exactly what Russia's doing now. So, so when people say Putin was KGB, that actually matters in this instance because he came up in an agency where the tradition was to do these sorts of things. Right, and that's obviously why he's doing them now. You spoke with Trump officials as well. I did, yeah. And, and I, I think you said when we first started talking that some of them even have expressed concern about November 2020. They did, yeah. Tell us about that, if you would. So, unfortunately, there were only about four or five people I allowed to speak anonymously in my book, and most of them were Trump people because it is difficult for current administration officials to speak out. But these anonymous officials, um, well, I guess there, there was one who was in Elaine Duke, who was the acting Homeland Security Secretary, did say to me on the record that, you know, electoral interference, election security is not consuming a lot of time in the White House. Um, and that all anyone really cares about is whether actual votes were changed in 16, and as long as they weren't, the, the problem's fine, and the influence campaign doesn't matter. But what these other officials told me, these national security council officials, a couple key points they ran through, the quotes for this are on the book. One, that whenever this issue is raised, Donald Trump goes berserk, because he thinks that, they think Donald Trump thinks that it's questioning the legitimacy of his election. They think that Donald Trump wants Russia to help him win again which is why he hasn't condemned Russia's actions. They think Russia is sowing, Trump is sowing discord and confusion by denying that Russia did something that it's plainly, that it's proven that Russia did do. And I had one senior advisor to Donald Trump say to me that he actually believes um, that Donald Trump is doing, um, and he's a former advisor, but he worked, but the official worked in the White House for over a year, that, that Donald Trump is actually doing Russia's bidding rather than America's and that Russia has some sort of leverage over him. So, so, so there's a lot of, alarm in some of these folks I was able to talk to. And interestingly, it kind of breaks along two tracks. Some people are really alarmed. Some people are like, Donald Trump's harder on Russia than any president we've ever had. So his advisors kind of break up into two groups. But among that first group, there's a lot of concern that this is an ongoing issue, that we are stumbling into it, and that the commander-in-chief doesn't necessarily want to prevent this sort of attack from happening. So what can be done? aside from him. We know he's not really going to do anything. But what can anyone do? Or we just have to be sitting ducks, David. When you say pre-November or, or after? Yeah. Pre-November. To, to prepare. To prepare. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. I, I would say, fortunately, this isn't just a presidential prerogative. It would be really great if there were um, presidential leadership here. But I think we can all conclude at this point that Donald Trump is not someone who is going to launch a coordinated policy response to the threat of election interference. So... Taking that aside, what we can do is break this up into, into chunks. In the social media chunk, you can have social media companies prioritizing this issue, hunting for foreign networks, being transparent when they find those networks. We could have Congress regulating social media, which they have yet to do at all after 2016, which I find astounding. Um, you can also have citizens using social media be more questioning of the veracity of the information that they're seeing. 
Um, and perhaps that would reduce the effectiveness of social media manipulation. But this is a management question. We're not going to resolve this before November. The second has to do with more documents are dumped. And if that happens, it's going to fall on reporters to focus more than they did on the source of those document dumps than on their contents, rather than saying, oh, look at that juicy email, asking the question, wait, who released those emails? Why, why are we seeing these? And who's trying to manipulate us? Uh, and, and, and we don't have to fall for this stuff. In France, in 2017, Russian intelligence, through a third party, hacked and released the emails of Emmanuel Macron and his campaign. Same story. But France barely registered the email release in part because its citizens and its politicians and its journalists didn't want to be played like those Americans were a few months earlier. So, so we can try to be a bit more discerning about maintaining our own independence as a country. And that would give me the last thing we could do, which is probably the most important, which is our citizens just need to care. Because if, if people don't care, if Americans don't care that their elections are being manipulated, that they're being manipulated, that people are trying to play them, then this fight really is lost. Because even if Donald Trump cared about it, because as history shows us, you can never stop these operations. You can just seek to deter them. You can manage them. But they, they always are happening. And what citizens need to decide, I'm offended by this. I want to push back against this. If emails are dumped, I'm going to look at this critically rather than just absorb the content because I think it's funny. And 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 if we get there, and I think there's some things we can do to get there, like reducing polarization, not making this a political issue, like reviving local media, like improving our education system so that it educates citizens on both the merits of democracy as well as the importance of being a discerning user of digital news mediums. But but before we get there where our population is more engaged, I worry that it's just open season to manipulate our electorate in service of the interests of foreign actors. And as you described, what Trump may have been prepared to do in 2016 if he had lost prepared to show, to, to suggest that it was rigged. I mean, it seems like we're being set up for the same thing already. Polls say Joe Biden is ahead. It seems as if no matter what, he has a play if he loses. I, I had some military officials on the show um, not too long ago, and I asked them, what happens if he loses and he doesn't want to leave? Or what happens if he tries to cancel the election? It seems to me, David, that all of that in, in this chaos, anti-democratic destabilization operation, all of that is, is on the table. Yeah, no, and the, the, I, I agree. And the thing that's really interesting about this is this is, a, this is a new moment for America. It's not a new moment in history. Many countries have had this experience where you have a leader with undemocratic instincts who's in power and an election's approaching. And the question emerges of whether they will seek to incite violence or whether they will seek to do undemocratic things to maintain power. That many of those episodes are detailed in my book. They often involve cases of election interference and people were bracing for violence following the result because the undemocratic leader wouldn't want to leave power. And that could either lead to mass demonstrations or if the margin were wide enough, the leader would sort of back down and say, OK, I really lost here. But this is a new moment for America. Because there's never been a moment where people wondered, will one of the two candidates, I mean, I guess this happened in 16, but he wasn't president, will the president accept the outcome of the election and let it proceed as it does? Um, it's not as though when George H.W. Bush lost to Bill Clinton, anyone was wondering whether H.W. Bush was going to call out his supporters into the streets. So, so, but there is, again, globally, this is so ununique and unexceptional in American history. 
history, it's extraordinarily um, exceptional, which is part of why, again, to me, the history that I lay out in my pages is so essential to read, because to understand our current moment, you really do have to step outside of just America and look at how both Russian and American intelligence have targeted elections all over the world in order to see how this kind of stuff can play out. Because if Italy or Chile was the battleground in the 20th century, America is the battleground now. And, and we need to adjust our minds to accept that because, because it's just the reality we now live in. Strongly encourage you all to check out David Scheimer's book, Rigged America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference. A number of on-the-record interviews with some very important people, uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton, George Schultz, uh, Steve Bannon, Harry Reid, Trent Lott, uh, Leon Panetta, Susan Rice. He mentioned, of course, John Brennan and uh, Jay Johnson, uh, John Podesta, uh, and many, many more. Uh, so very important uh, work. Um, and a lot of information that heretofore we've not known. So we strongly encourage you all to check it out. Once again, rigged America, Russia, and 100 years of covert electoral interference by my guest, David Scheimer. Again, David, congratulations on the book, man. And we'll use this to keep us informed that I'm, are, are you planning on uh, doing any more writing or following up leading up to November? Yeah, and and I, I appreciate the discussion as well. And and keep us posted about your ongoing research and writing because this is very important. We want people to be informed. David Scheimer, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, 
you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.